coming to you from the pit in Arroyo Grande, California. Your hosts, John Hackleman and Dr. James Casper. It's time for Pitmaster and the Doc. Pitmaster here, and I'm here with the Doc. Good to see you, John. And we have a special de- guest who, um, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be honest right now. I'm going to be honest. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, <laughs> he ran away. He's already gone. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not proud of this, but I'll, I'm going to admit it. I was not, like, I didn't know what pygmies were per se. I kind of thought they were like leprechauns or minahunis. Um, and, and then if somebody said they were, um, they were being extinct, I, to be honest, I'd be like, okay, how's that affect me? I don't really care. I don't even know what a pygmy is. Okay. Then I met, I met this guy, Justin Wren, um, two weeks or last week, last week at, at the super show in Vegas. And we started talking and, and, uh. He had a, a booth at the Super Show, and it was, you know, you know, fighting for the forgotten. And I was like, okay, so we start talking. And all of a sudden, because of his passion, seriously, all of a sudden, I became like a fucking pygmy guy. Like, I love pygmies now, and I really care about that whole thing. And I usually aren't, I'm not like that usually. It's like, hey, I got enough to worry about here. Let the guys over there feed themselves and these guys feed themselves. But when you talk to this guy, Justin, who you guys are going to talk to in a sec, well, we're going to talk to him, but you're going to watch. Um, you re- The passion that comes out of him. I was like at a, at a party after and I was talking to him about these pygmies and I'm so interested in my the pygmies. My wife's like... Can we go over there now? I was like, hold on, hold on. We're talking about these pygmies. And and he loves these pygmies. He's given his life for these pygmies. I mean, the, the love and passion that Justin has for these py- pygmies, and you're going to find out about it real right now, um, is it's, it's awe-inspiring to me. Awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring? Awe-inspiring. It's awe-inspiring, and I have nothing but respect for this guy. This guy... He's a fighter, and fighters are martial artists are my favorite type of people because because of their heart. Now this guy has that heart for fighting; it's like huge. But now he has it for for these pygmies. They're little they're little people in Africa, but he has he has given his love and his passion to these people, and he's it's his mission in life to save them and give them water. So we're gonna talk to him right now. He's here. His nickname is the Big Pygmy, and his name is uh, Justin Wren. Am I saying that right? Yes, sir. Okay. You are. So, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here. You know, uh, growing up, um, I actually got pretty heavily bullied, and it wasn't until I found the UFC, mixed martial arts, um, that it gave me an outlet um, and kind of a, a purpose to focus on for for the first, the next ten years. Um, until I found the the pygmies and their plight, um, but uh, it's pretty surreal 
to be here, sitting here talking uh, to you, the pitmaster, <laughs> John Hackleman. Uh, you know, I was a huge fan of, uh, of Chuck and, and you and everything that the pit uh, was. I had a shirt uh, from the pit uh, that I was wearing at, I think, 15, 16 um, years old. Yeah, there you go, Doc. Um, and uh, so this is just uh, really, really cool. Um, for me, it's kind of a, a, a neat little milestone um, to be like, wow, you know, uh, I'm here talking with you guys, with your fan base. Um, it's, it's an honor. And thank you so much for that introduction. Um, for me, if there was two things I could do with my life, it would be live to love and fight for people. Um, and so for you to kind of capture that in the intro um, was, was humbling. So oh, thank you. It's so obvious because I'm usually, I'm a conservative and I'm not a... a I'm usually not like, like to be honest, like if you were talking to me, most of the time, if you were like someone else, and you're, I was like, okay, they're pygmies, all right, whatever, and I'll talk to you later. But you had such a, uh, you have such a passion. I, I was talking, telling everybody there at the Super Show, like, you know, I was talking to Laborio, and I was talking to Mike Metzger, and all the guys, like, do, do you know this guy? Well, I mean, he is like, you can, just, it comes out of you. Like it's it's unbelievable, bro. It's 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 uh like I said, it it, it really impressed the shit. You've heard me talk about him. He's my he's my BFF. He's a uh, this is James, and he's he's one of my students. He likes to be called Jim, but I don't like Jim, so I call him James. Him and my mom. That's it. <laughs> and, uh, so he's one of my students. Our our his daughter was dating my my stepson for a while, and that's how we met. He's a local orthopedic surgeon. So in case my shoulders go out or anything like that, um, he's going to fix it. But until then, we just work out almost every day. We do a podcast. We go hiking on the weekend. But you've heard me talk about this guy already since I've been back. Yeah, when John came back, I asked him about the Super Show. And I think he pretty much just talked about you. <laughs> I know he did a lot while he was there. But uh, it's a, you're an impressive guy, bro. You had a big and, impact on John. Yeah. So thanks for uh, good to meet you, and thanks for coming on our show. It's awesome of you. Yeah, it's awesome. So we we're gonna ask you. Um, and my wife is tired of you by by now. I'm telling you, she's like, "Fuck, would you stop talking about the pygmy guy? Jesus Christ!" I'm like, "No, you don't understand the water." But anyway, um, well, I want to hear. Why don't you tell us yeah. the. I didn't get no. to hear it all. You got to talk to John. I, this tell, is a story. You'll tell us it. and the people listening, like, how you found your way from the U.S. over, you know, to Africa. And there's a picture of, oh, there's a picture of you over there. And then we got a yeah. picture of you guys over here with uh, with uh, some of the guys. Hey, pygmy is you. a short, tell us what a pygmy is, being, pygmy is first. And for you guys yeah. out there, it's P-Y-G-M-Y. That's how you spell it. I messed that up. I spelled pig me. And then I put gay. Why did I put gay? Because my voice recognition. Or only when I talk to you, gay stuff comes out. My wife does not like that. Anyway, go on. Siri's pretty smart. No, that's that's awesome. Well, I mean, to, to address it first, John, um, I was one of those guys, without a shadow of a doubt, where I was like, hey, if we're going to do anything to help anyone, why wouldn't we help people first in our backyard? Why would I ever go over there? Why would I go to Africa why would I, you know, they can help themselves. Um, they've had plenty of time to do it, and it's just a big money hole. Um, why Why would we go over there and help? And so um, 
for me, that's 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 kind of where I started. Where well, one, I was a depressed, drunk, drug addict for about four four years heavily, but six years total. Um, and depression was like a ten year battle. I was clinically diagnosed with depression at thirteen years old, and that started because I sat at the lunch table by myself, got pelted in the back of the head with a chocolate milk spit wads or food or, or fist. Um, I had a speech uh, problem. I had a speech therapist. I had a stutter. Um, and then I couldn't pronounce certain words. So from kindergarten to sixth grade, I had a speech therapist. But words like fish would be hard for me. I would say fush instead. No matter how hard I would try, it would come out fush. Um, and it would be frustrating. Um, and uh, so I think I was just an easy target. Um, that and got uh, – I think it was the last kid in the U.S. Um, that had a chili bowl haircut. So my, uh, you know, parents just put the bowl on the head and cut right around it. Um, so and I was a, I was a chubby kid. So we call that know, rice kids. bowl in Hawaii. Rice bowl haircut. In Hawaii, we call that a rice bowl haircut. Rice bowl, yeah, rice bowl, chili bowl. Same thing uh, with Texas, right? Texas. <laughs> so chili bowl, um, but rice bowl, and uh, yeah, man. So that. Uh, accompanied with me being a, a chubby kid, you know, kids would pull up my shirt, uh, grab my fat, you know, twist my nipples. I still have this habit. Um, it doesn't even matter. I, I even caught myself. Uh, it's hard for me to watch a, a, a TED talk that I did. I was invited to do one of those and I actually had malaria, my third bout with malaria during the talk. I found out after the talk, it said I had the flu or something, but really it was malaria, but I, I'll, I'll pull on my shirt um, and it's because, you know, growing up, I had this habit of not wanting to show off my man boobs or my belly. Um, and so I still have that habit today that I can't really get rid of. I don't think I've ever said that on a podcast, but, uh, I think I was more thinking of conversation between you and me, but, um, no. So I, I, I had that found MMA, um, and that just, uh, gave me a lot of hope. Um, but it, it didn't last. I would say that, I started fighting, got on the Ultimate Fighter TV show, um, was there. That was great. That was my childhood dream. It became uh, it became a reality. Um, but then whenever drugs got involved um, and fighting wasn't everything that I had hoped it to be, um, I, I went through another relapse with depression, uh, tons and tons of drugs to where uh, my best friend, after like an eight-week-long binge, and I would go off on these crazy long binges, but... I was like uh, basically a missing person. My family broke into my house, couldn't find me. There was Coke and pill bottles. I got hooked on Oxy bad when I had a surgery. Um, and Oxy overtook my life um, uh, to where I was taking hundreds a month, uh, being prescribed hundreds because I went to three different doctors. Um, uh, this was before they were communicating across state lines. So I would go visit my family in DFW. I was living in Colorado. I'd go wrestle in Iowa and I would do this uh, little loop every month, um, saying it was for training. Uh, but really it was to, to fulfill or fill my addiction. Um, so I got a voicemail from my best friend, uh, and it was at an eight week bender and, uh, it said, I can't believe you missed my wedding. Um, I can't believe my best man didn't show up. And so I was, I was just far, far gone. Um, had this kind of radical moment of intervention, uh, with, with some close friends and family. Um, and then after that, I, I just realized, Hey, I, I've got to use this one life I get to live, um, for something, uh, for something greater than myself. I'm a fighter. You, you John, have come across so many fighters. We all have 
to, to be a fighter, I think you have to have a fighter's heart. Um, and there's, there's a depth to that, um, that, that wasn't being filled, um, just through fighting. Um, so for me, it transitioned to fighting for people. And if I could do that, and I started in my backyard, um, started at a children's hospital, uh, became a volunteer there, had to go through night classes to become an official volunteer at the Denver Children's Hospital. Um, and then from there, uh, drug rehab facilities, at-risk uh, youth, um, inner-city youth. I, I would just start involving myself at uh, the homeless shelter, um, and I would start doing little by little um, in my own neighborhood, and I would do that weekly. Um, and then it kind of turned into doing something bigger with another organization nationally uh, to where they were flying me around the country sharing my own drug addiction story in prisons. Um, and so I've been in over 100 different like uh, prisons sharing my story from juvenile detention centers um, to death row. Literally, I've been on in Corcoran State uh, in California before – uh, well, while on the same block as Charles Manson, um, speaking to some guys that even helped start up the Crips and in those one-on-one -on -one conversations. So anyways, I, I guess to, to sum that up, I, I've never really shared that part, but for me, it's let's make a difference here, there, and everywhere or did, anywhere. Did you have a mentor when you first started, like your first experience volunteering or doing something yeah. for other people? Was there someone that kind of led you that way? Um... Yes and no. Uh, I started with like kind of local friends at, at my local church and just kind of started there and then found a volunteer that was, um, yeah, at the children's hospital was very heavily involved. His name was Scott. Um, and Scott just showed me and, and invited in, uh, at the time it was grudge, uh, training center. And I, you know, I got to go first to the children's hospital and see, like, wow, he, Scott invited me saying that um, that there was this little kid that had watched The Ultimate Fighter, that he was, like, 10 or 11 years old, had gotten in a four-wheeling accident, um, and had brain trauma. Um, and that his whole family thought it would be really cool if, uh, or his whole family was there, it had been weeks, he was finally starting to recover, um, and they thought it would be cool if some MMA fighter could come visit, well... I was a fighter. I was nicknamed the Viking. He liked Vikings at that time. And um, so they invited me out and uh, I went there and I would say that that changed my life, but it wasn't a positive experience the first time I went. It was actually wow. for me wow. negative. I left crying um, because I went in there, visited this little kid named Bryce Castle. And, uh, and when I saw him, um, it was brutal. Uh, he could only like basically moan in agony um, in pain. Um, and to be honest, I thought I was going to go there and meet this little guy that was a fan and he was oblivious to me even being there. Um, it was like a 10, 10 to 11, wait, maybe nine to 11 years old. I forget his exact age. Um, and I, I, I almost felt like they brought me there in false pretenses that I would see this kid that was a big fan. And then I got brought there to see this almost not brain dead, but, but a kid that could only feel pain and, and not, not even make eye contact with anybody. Um, and so I left there frustrated and even kind of mad at the guy, Scott, I go, why'd you even bring me here, man? Like, like that was, that was brutal. Like that kid doesn't even know I'm there. Like his family did. I took a picture with the kid, but, but he's not even going to remember me being there. And I remember him telling me almost like, uh, like suck it up. 
like what you did for for that family, um, even if it's just moral support for the mom, the dad that are watching their kid, that, that literally his, I guess it flipped and his head landed kind of in between a tree and the, um, the four-wheeler, kind of crunched on him. Um, and they're like, and I was like tearing up and I remember Scott saying, hey, if you gotta cry, cry, bro. But, but what you did for his family, his little brother, or sorry, his older brother, you come in there signing a picture, them putting it on the wall, like, like, like if you got to cry, cry, but, but the, the smile you put on that kid's face is, is worth it. Is, and that wasn't even the kid, Bryce, it was his brother. Um, so that's kind of where it all began, where I left with like almost these like angry tears in my eyes. Um, but then I realized oh, it's a really cool story. Now I've, I've been to Bryce's school. Um, I've shared my story even about how I talked to him. He competes in local jujitsu tournaments now. So they, when I left there, they said, the doctor said, uh, whenever we came out of the room, he'll probably never walk again. He'll be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Um, and to see him make the progress he has and uh, the sport of jiu-jitsu, the sport of martial arts, uh, he's competed at Nagas and, and I think uh, IBJJF tournaments. Um, I believe he is a sophomore in high school now. Um, and to see the kind of recovery that he's made and how he has, has his wits about him, how he's an honor student. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see um, that kind of transformation. And so from there, starting small and just doing what I could, um, you know, I had someone tell me one time, man, just, you know, because I, I told him I stepped away from the sport of fighting. I thought that at least for a year I needed to sacrifice fighting. That was my only way of, of, of pay, of job. That's the only thing I knew how to do. I started fighting professionally at 19 years old. Um, so I never really had a real job besides that. Um, and uh, a guy said, hey, man, just have your head on a swivel and what you're passionate about. Um, one day you'll be able to, to, to put, you know, have, have a house or put a food on, on the table. I haven't bought a house yet, but, uh, you know, I've been able to provide um, by, by making a difference and by fighting. Um, fighting has been, been my main way of pay. Um, and he's like, look, why don't you just try to, try to do what you love and then you'll never have to work a day in your life kind of thing. And John, I think you've been able to, to kind of do that. I, a lot of times it is work without a doubt. Um, but you get to make a difference in, in it's people's work. lives. It's not, it's not work. work, right? No. You're making no. an impact. I wake up, I swear to God, this is true. You could ask my wife, poor thing. I wake up every day. I tell her at least once a day, I can't believe I'm living this life. I, 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 love it. I honestly can't. I can't. When I walked into my first gym at 10 years old thinking, I'm tired of getting bullied. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and uh, didn't want to so get bullied. And I, I hooked up in the toughest martial arts gym probably in the world, definitely in, that, in Hawaii, and came up with the toughest guy in and out of prison, and he, and I never would have thought my life would be like this, but I never work another day, I get to, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm working right now, doing a podcast with my best friend, and me, we're doing a podcast, and I'm working right now in my gym, this is in my gym, so yeah, yeah. you're right, and well, let me ask you this on a side note, yeah. have you ever met Court McGee? Uh, I, I haven't, but we've, we've, we've messaged each other words of encouragement quite a bit because his story is so inspiring to me. Cause you know, you're one of my guys, um, and he comes out here all the time and, and we, uh, I was his coach on ultimate fighter that season. He won, um, you guys, you guys would be like, 
Tony fucking Robbins. If you guys got together on a speaking cir- uh, circuit, you guys would just, you would kill it. You guys need to get together. You guys okay. have so much, uh, so much, you guys would have so much uh, together. Like, you guys are so similar. You met Cordy. Yeah. So, he's like, and, and he has a beard. But um, <laughs> you guys are so similar, it would be crazy. And he, his passion for people is like yours. And he loves, we go to, we're in Vegas. He's signing an autograph after a fight. He talks to every single person for like 20 minutes. He has their autograph and phone number when he's done. He loves everyone. You guys, we, I have to make the connection. You have his, his contact? Hey, please. Yeah, the, you guys. Uh, no, but anyway, so, so after the fighting, we haven't gotten the pygmies yet. You're, so you're not. Oh, yeah. Because you guys, people don't, might, might not know, you got like a 13-2 and two record in MMA. You're not, you have a complete winning record. And you fought in the UFC and Bellator. So you're not like a Tachi Palace fighter. You're a big league fighter and your record's 13-2. and two. That's pretty damn impressive. Hey, well, thank you so much. Um, and I think I need to to update uh, Sure Dog or whatever because it's technically fifteen and two, which doesn't matter. But um, <laughs> but I, I it does, small it details. Matter. No, it's small details. But you're, I just, I appreciate it. And I took five years off from the sport because I was just like, you know what? Um, if if fighting is great. But I feel called with my life to fight for people and, and fight for the pygmies and fight for the forgotten. The name came from them. Uh, when I got there um, and this guy was telling me about the, the, the extreme stuff that they were going through at that time and even currently, um, there was people groups and tribes and uh, especially rebel groups that believed if they could hunt, um, kill, cook, and eat – uh, the Mabuti Pygmies, that they would get supernatural powers where bullets would fly right through them um, and they would be invincible uh, in war, these rebel groups would be. I just couldn't believe it and um, got there, met the chief. I mean, I was crying the first time I met them because of their their their, their stories, their plight. Um, and, uh, and the chief told me, um, uh, everyone else calls us the forest people. There's even a book out uh, by, I believe, Colin Turnbull, one of the the most uh, prestigious anthropologists um, ever. Uh, he lived with them as well. Um, and he, his book's called The Forest People from the 60s or 70s. It's a great book. Um, but uh, he said, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. And one of the reasons was uh, later I'd find out a story, um, one of the, most evil stories I've ever heard was um, this man uh, watched his nephew actually might be, no, he's not in that picture behind you, but he's from the same village, uh, Bahaha village. And um, he said, everyone else calls it. Oh, so he said, I watched my, my nephew's wife. So his niece in law um, get kicked to her knees. Um, and she had a machine gun put to her head, uh, a machete put to her throat and she was literally force-fed pieces of her own husband. Um, so this man's nephew, uh, he had to watch be cooked over a fire, um, and and was forced. His nephew's wife was force-fed pieces of her own husband. Um, so without a doubt, the most evil thing I could have ever um, heard of. Um, and then I found out that anywhere from 400 to 600,000 uh, Mabuti pygmies were um, enslaved uh, in the Congo. And then I found out that from going to Rwanda, uh, that was kind of the safest route into Goma, which is 
a town of a million people that have been overtaken numerous times by rebel groups there. Um, I mean, rebel groups can take over a town that's protected by the military and police officers. Um, these rebel groups that came from Rwanda, they were Hutu and Tutsi uh, tribes, the genocide. They were on opposite sides then. They still kind of are on opposite sides. But then there's there's been rebel groups that have been disbanded and come back together that are made up literally of the Hutu and Tutsi tribes where they work hand in hand together in Congo. So, um, and there's been over 6 million people uh, that have died of this uh, conflict. Um, so it's kind of a lot of people in Africa call it the silent um, Holocaust um, because their, their numbers are literally rivaling uh, the, the number of Jews uh, of life lost of the Jewish people in, in the Holocaust. So that's their terminology, not mine. I know that that can offend some people even comparing it, um, but it still is. Uh, a horrific war that's taking place right now. And so in Rwanda, the Pygmies, um, there were 100,000 or more um, in Rwanda, which is a really small uh, country. If you look it up uh, on a map of Africa, you can barely see Rwanda um, because it's so small. Um, and then even the size of Africa isn't even true on maps. Uh, you'll have to, uh, if, if there's listeners here and they're on their smartphone or have a computer in front of them, they really should Google images and do the real size of Africa. Um, even if you guys can do that sometime, you'll, you'll blow your mind that you can fit the entire US, you can fit all of India, you can fit all of China, and you can fit all of, uh, of Europe, like Spain and, and France and, and Italy. You can fit all of those countries plus Japan all in the continent of Africa. Um, and so it doesn't look as big as it is in most real maps. So Rwanda is actually a, a tiny country inside of Africa. Um, but the pygmy, the pygmy people group there were targeted whenever the Hutu and Tutsi were, where both sides hated um, the pygmies so much and believed in this witchcraft and uh, that you get supernatural powers, um, that they took the, the pygmy people group down to just a few hundred. Um, and so after being over a hundred thousand in Rwanda, now there's only a few hundred left. Um, and so, yeah, their people group is almost extinct in, in Rwanda. Uh, that's the Batwa. Um, and in the Congo, the pygmy people group there, uh, are named the Mabuti, um, and the Efe pygmies. And so the pygmies are kind of the, the stature size of, of them and how they're identified. And then they also call themselves a tribe name of Mabuti or, or Batwa or Efe. And so that's why my name is Mabuti Mangbo, which uh, there just means the big pygmy. So that's what they call me. What? Wow. Um, what? Okay, so like in Hawaii, they have like, and they're not really, they're Manahunis, and they're like, they're mystical so there's no real Manahunis, like there's no real leprechauns, but there is a real pygmy. What is a real pygmy? What? Because is it like a midget, a dwarf? Is it politically incorrect to say either one of those two things? Do they have, um, what? 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 What is a pygmy, and why do they? How do they evolve into yeah. being pygmyism or whatever they? Yeah, you you'll get mixed reviews if you look it up online. If if pygmies are a derogatory term or not. Um, but there, when you ask the Mabuti pygmies, and I've lived in 12 different villages of pygmies and asked this question every time, um, and I've met thousands uh, of Mabuti pygmies, they're proud of the name. Uh, originally, it comes from 
uh, it's their people group. They're like, why would we not want to be called uh, pygmies? It's it's who we are, and, and we're proud of it. Um, and so there, originally, uh, the Belgians um, who speak French uh, gave them the name pygmy because it meant standing between wrist and elbow height. Um, so it means smaller people group, uh, but they are uh, proportional in size, so, so not like um, dwarfism or anything like that. So they stand regular height. Uh, if you ask anthropologists um, and scientists, uh, they would say uh, it's been because, and there was, there was some uh, new article that just came out showing um, the, the distinct size difference in even a Western country um, whenever nutrition first came and, the, and how height uh, was increased whenever better and better nutrition and farming practices uh, came to their country. So um, with the pygmies, though, they uh, go through malnutrition quite a bit. Um, they also live in the rainforest. Um, and in the rainforest, uh, the, in the canopy, only about 2% of the actual sunlight comes through the canopy to the, the rainforest floor in most places. Some pygmies live in a place where there's a clearing, some don't, but they have they don't have as much vitamin D um, as we do. They don't have as much nutrition. They're hunter-gatherers, so they live on a lot less of a calorie intake uh, than we do, um, and it's just not a very diverse um, diet. And so that are some theories. I, I don't know. Uh, and others say through evolution, um, you know, needing to be smaller, uh, more nimble or, or, or mobile um, and agile through the forest uh, on their hunts uh, to stay more quiet, to not be stepping on the leaves and, and stirring up a lot of commotion. Um, so those are some theories uh, of, of why they're smaller. Um, and I seem to think that that, that could be uh, some, some of the valid they, do they Do they ever crossbreed? And if they do, which is the, uh, the what do you call it? The gen the dominant, the dominant gene. So if they if they cross breed, breed, will they get bigger in the middle, or does theirs dominate? Yeah. So I I know some children that sadly um, were born through I would say um, rape of the slave masters that that, that owned uh, the the mother um, or said they owned her. Uh, they. Um, and they will be kind of like halfway in between. So the average height for the average man, uh, average male in Congo for the Mabuti pygmies is only four foot seven. Uh, they're neighboring tribes, depending on what it is, uh, which tribe. And so tribes there, um, I mean, they, they can marry among different tribes, except normally the pygmies. If, if I've met one man that married a, a Mabuti pygmy woman and he was outcast from his family because of it, had to go live among the pygmies, which to them looks, uh, looks like he, he's now chosen the life of living like an animal. Um, so the belief is that some, uh, it depends on where you are. Some think they're half man, half animal. Um, and I would say, to that, you know, people ask a lot of times, how in the world does a, in 2018, does a tribe believe, uh, you know, another tribe is half man, half animal? How can they not see that they're truly human? Um, and I point them to a story of a man named Otabinga. And Otabinga was a Mabuti pygmy that we brought to the U.S. Uh, explorers brought back from 1902 to 1906. They actually brought him from a village that we actually work in. Um, at least a, a region we actually work in. Um, and, uh, 
and they brought them back from there. They bought them for different stories or different things. Um, but one story says that they brought them for a spool, a half, half spool of brass wire. Um, and another says they bought them for two bags of, of, of salt. Um, and another says that they slaughtered his family and just took them. Um, but they put them in the, the St. Louis World Fair uh, from 1902 to 1904. And then after that was kind of his, his kind of travel around kind of started to diminish. They brought him to the Bronx zoo and they were literally breaking records of over 40,000 people a day coming and seeing the pygmy and the monkey house. So they literally put him in the, in the house with the monkeys and fed him bananas from 1904 to 1906 until he escaped, grabbed a gun uh, from a security guard and, and, and killed himself. Um, so, uh, yeah, we did it a hundred years ago and I would say that there, um, through education, there's brilliant people, absolutely brilliant people. The pygmies can survive in the forest in ways that I could never do. Um, and they're super smart, um, the way that they live off the land. Um, but educational wise, uh, they're, they're behind the times electronic wise and, and a lot of other things and, and going through there whenever you see twig and leaf huts or mud houses, um, with thatch roofing, um, you think, oh, wow, this is kind of like almost 100 years ago. Um, so no running water. Uh, they might have a radio. They might have a flashlight, uh, but no, no electricity in the home or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm kind of rambling there, but giving you some of the history, giving you some of the context, context where they're, they're seen as, uh, as a big difference between them. Um, so, but there's over 200 tribes in Congo. And there's over 200 spoken languages in Congo. Um, so to villainize one tribe, I, I never really say a tribe by name of, of their oppressors because it depends on what region you're in. Um, but, but normally it's from uh, either their hunter-gatherers and normally it's the people that are farmers um, or raising livestock or doing both um, that are the people group that oppress them. So what, what um, how old are you? You're 30. Just 31. So can you tell us about your first trip there? I'm curious, you know, growing up here, like, tell us about that first time you went over there. What was that like, and did was it what you expected? Yeah, so it wasn't anything that I expected. And Well, one, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I just knew that where we were originally flying into had been uh, taken over by the rebels, and we were going to have to find a... Uh, a small uh, kind of prop pilot uh, plane or, or to, to come pick us up in Uganda um, and then to drop us off uh, in, in Congo. Uh, we were having to circle the runway um, because people were still cutting the grass and they were doing that with machetes. Um, uh, and it was a whole village uh, clearing the runway because they didn't know the last time it was years and years ago that uh, that a other airplane had landed there. Um, we land, we get out, uh, we have some translators that pick us up and take us deep into the rainforest. We have to hike in, and whenever we got there, um, I just remember it being so surreal. Uh, there was people that literally, um, some of them had been paid uh, in clothing, and others had just they were just wearing leaves um, as as their clothes. Um, they had never seen uh, people with white skin before, so they literally were running um, and hiding. They had heard of people, uh, but they had never seen us, and we just kind of show up unannounced. Um, and they ran and hid behind trees. I mean, you could kind of imagine I'm, uh, I'm this Viking-looking dude or vanilla gorilla 
type looking guy um, there walking through the rainforest. Um, and so some people were excited at our visit and some people were scared and hid behind trees. But this was uh, a visit where you just basically showed up. It wasn't, there's was nothing yeah. arranged. You just said, oh, we're going to this spot on the map and, and get yeah, people so there. We kind of called it a scouting trip where we wanted to see if there was even a way. The problems were way too big and we were way too small. Um, so, you know, is there even a way to make a difference? Or if we spent our whole life trying to make a difference, the visual I got was, is it going to be like trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper? Every time we, we pull out a drop and try to help, is it just going to fill right back up? Um, and so I didn't know the answer to that question. I left there thinking that feeling defeated and really getting to the, the second trip might, might show where the passion came from because I went one time left and felt like, Oh my gosh, uh, there's nothing we can do. And then there's just a second trip was, and it was kind of the same reason I went the first time was, am I always going to wonder what if, what if I would have gone, what if I would have tried um, what if I would have given it a chance, you know, what, what could have happened? Um, and not trying to pat myself on the back, but trying to say like, Hey, my life, my life actually mattered. I, I actually made a difference some way, somehow for someone. Um, and even if it was just one person, you know, what, is that worth it? And, uh, for them, what they go through on a daily basis is so much different. And it was without a doubt, culture shock and, and, and heartbreaking and gut wrenching. And, um, so the second trip I went, I met a little boy named Andy Bo, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, John, when we met, but uh, Andy Bo was one and a half years old, and it was my it was three days before I left, and I was uh, cupping the the back of his head, um, kind of cradling it with my hand, my palm. I was holding uh, his little hand. Um, his mom was across from us, uh, and his father and his brother um, had already passed away because of the water crisis. Um, and then I watched Andy Bo as, as, as he took his life last breath, um, and, 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 and blood came out of his ears. Uh, and that was the first time in my life. And I had seen a dead body or two or a few. Um, but it was always in the, in the instance and you're, you're a doctor, James or Jim. And, uh, and for me, I had never felt the life leave a body. Um, and so that was something that, um, and in such a way that for me was, was injustice. Like, man, I was born with clean water. I could technically live on the water in my dog's bowl. Um, you know, these women are going on three and a half mile round trip walks. They're, they're, most of them are spending up to six hours a day collecting dirty water for their family. Um, they're having to select children that can't go to school um, because they have to go on these water walks that when the, when the jerry can's full, a five gallon jerry can, 20 liters is 44 pounds. And these little women and children are the ones that have to go collect it because these four, four, four foot seven men are having to go hunt and gather. Um, and so to see his life robbed, um, or cut short, uh, it, it wrecked me to hear, the sounds of the village and, to, to, to dig the grave, um, with, with my translators and a buddy of mine, uh, to have blisters on our hands, digging the grave. I just remembered like, we should be, we should be digging a well instead of a grave. Um, and thinking like, okay, I've already taken a year off from fighting because I didn't want to go back in that world where my drug addiction was so bad. 
um, to where for me, I had a reason to party uh, if I won and I had a reason to numb myself if I lost. Um, you know, this is a, this is a worthy fight and a worthy cause and it's fighting for something much greater than myself. Um, so I'll take off another year. Um, and so the one year turned into two years. Uh, and then that third year I went and lived in the Congo, uh, for a full year. Um, while I was there, our goal was to, it, it was kind of, it was kind of four things. Well, well four and then three, the first four was, I'm just going to go live with them, listen to them learn from them, and then they're going to tell me the best way to, to love them. Uh, but if I don't take the time to live with them, and I won't really experience it. And John, you know from being a martial arts instructor, you can, you can tell someone uh, something, and it can go in one ear out the other. You can show them something, and they, they might forget about it. Um, but, if, but if you do all three, if you teach them and they're able to get it between their ears, if they're able to see it with their eyes, and then they're able to experience it, get their hands on it, and actually do it, you, you retain it so much more. Um, so I wanted to live with them, listen to them, learn from them, and then that way we could come up with a, a way together uh, to love them the most. And they, they taught me this Swahili proverb while I was there, and it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Um, and so that inspired me with the three things of like, okay, we're going we're gonna to equip them with the tools to drill the wells for themselves. We're going to educate them with the knowledge um, so that they know how to do it. That, that whole give a man a fish, feed them for a day, teach them how to fish, feed them for a lifetime. So equip them with the tools, educate them with the knowledge, and then empower them. Empower them to do it for themselves. Empower them to be the change they want to see in the world, their country, their community, their village, their tribe. And every man and woman don't want their kids to be drinking dirty water that literally kills them. And the, the statistic is, and, and once I couldn't escape it, once I came back and was just, I remember coming back from Andy Bo's funeral and having blisters on my hands that, that literally hurt any time. I used anytime I put my hands in my pocket or I unzip my bags. Um, and I got to this, I got to Popeye's chicken, um, at, at Atlanta airport. Um, and I was there and there was this mother daughter crew that had this shirt and it was, it was kind of, kind of right after the, the Haiti earthquake or it was maybe a year or two. And there was still a lot of aid going there, which a lot of people don't know, but tent city has grown and doubled and tripled in size because because of humanitarian aid, actually fuels. If, if it's not empowering, if it's disempowering, you actually cripple the, the community. Um, and, and I can go into that more, but, but, but I had been there and I had seen Tent City and I had seen people that, that had uh, jobs um, and, and who were just living in Tent City because you get free food, you get clean water, and you get free rent. Um, and so it's a disempowering model where it's like, okay, there's got to be an escape plan. The locals have to be empowered. Um, charity isn't the, the answer to, to poverty. Like what we say at Fight for the Forgotten is opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is always better. So how do we truly open an opportunity for people to grab hold of? And instead of giving them a hand out, you're, you're reaching down and you're giving them a hand up and helping them on their own two feet dusting them off and then them saying, okay, I got it from here. Um, so that was kind of the model we wanted to approach. So did you see problem number one though? It sounds like they had a lot of problems, but was it the water yeah. at first? Yes. 
So actually it was land first. Um, so what Fight for the Forgotten has done um, with, with also some other partners as well, a university that's there, uh, a nonprofit here stateside called Water 4. They're the ones that, that, that taught me how to drill wells. Um, but it, it first started with um, land, water, and food initiatives. So the land uh, had to come first. So we started off first with like 30 acres. Then after that, we got like 247 acres. And now we've helped them get back 3,000 acres of land. Um, and we did that through the local, um, state, and national level. Now we even have uh, the local, not local, but the state governor of the biggest state um, or biggest province um, in Congo sponsoring this, which has been really great because uh, until we were able to come there and kind of petition and lobby on their behalf, um, what they said was, hey, the first promise I made wasn't land or water or food uh, to Chief Jailua, who said, um, who said, you know, we don't have a voice. Can you help us have one? I knew that through fighting um, and through some sort of uh, social media reach, or not even social media, but, but just being an American, um, you know, we have free speech and people might listen to us um, and we have our friends and our family. Um, that was my first promise because I said, I can't promise you something I can't back up. Uh, I can't promise you you're going to get land or water or food, but I promise you I'll, I'll tell your story. Um, and from telling their story, uh, we were able to raise funds. And from those funds that were raised, we were able to go there and, and buy land on their behalf. And after buying land, we bought land back from their oppressors. Actually, even some, some we bought from the local government, but the majority of it we bought from their slave masters. Um, the reason was we came in the community, we casted a vision and said, hey, we want to help both sides. Uh, I didn't just attend Andy Bo's funeral. I've attended six or seven funerals of kids under the age of five years old. Um, and, and a lot of those people have, or not a lot, but two of those have been from the slave masters tribe. So it's not, so 3.4 million people die because of the water crisis each and every year, 2 million of them are under the age of five years old. So it preys mostly on, on the small and the weak, half the hospital beds, your doctor, but, but, uh, I've talked to a few doctors and a lot, you know, but, uh, a few have been like, really like half the hospital beds in the world are because of the, the water crisis. It's the number one cause of death in, in the developing world. Um, and so, uh, it even, it even has effects on, on malnutrition and hunger because whenever you're, you're eating your food, if it's dirty water and you have dysentery, you have diarrhea, you have all the stuff, you're not absorbing the nutrients from your food. It's going right in and right out. You're getting dehydrated like crazy. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's 850 kiddos a, a day that are dying because of diarrhea um, and stuff. It's just, it's it's pretty mind-blowing where the effects of diarrhea, the dehydration, the malnutrition, the, the sickness that comes from it. Um, and so, man, it was it was something that was like, wow, like we've got to start somewhere, but we can't drill wells first and then them not have ownership of the land. Um, and these are the first people group of Congo. They are they're the first citizens. Um, that's what that's what we've started to use that terminology. And it started to kind of kind of stick in the communities we've gone in where it's like these are the first citizens. These are the first people of Congo. Why are they the only ones that don't have land? Um, there's over 200 tribes. Everyone's got land ownership except them. Um, so it's been cool to see the reception of the local government saying, yeah, you're right. And even the locals 
population saying, yeah, you're right. And so buying the land back from one side, it benefited them financially, and then it benefited the pygmies for the first time having land. Then from there, both sides were getting clean water. Because if you come in and you try to love one side and you kind of hate the other, or you neglect or reject the other, um, it's going to only hurt the people you're originally trying to, to, to help and, and intend to, to work with. So it's been this huge undertaking of like a community development project. It's got to be both sides win um, and win big in a way of like uh, where they're excited for us to come in there and partner with them and work with them because they're not the slave masters that are sitting back drinking sweet tea and have like a hundred um, slaves underneath one family. Uh, normally there, there are villages we worked in where it's kind of one family owns the majority of the people or owned them, uh, or called them their property. Um, but normally we work with the villages that it's, uh, it's one family kind of owns another family. Um, and it's different than indentured servitude. It, it, it really is slavery where people will, will tie them up to a tree or tie them up and beat them. Um, and, and a lot of craziness. Uh, but it's cool to see the peace come in whenever you can help with both the land, the water, and then we start farming initiatives where we help them plant seeds deeper. Um, whenever it's in the rainforest, I mean, things can be washed away. Or you um, plant the seeds farther apart. Instead of just randomly scattering them, we help them with uh, an agriculturalist that will come in and say, hey, the reason your, your plants are kind of, or your corn, your maize, is choking itself out is because you're not planting your seeds far enough apart. They're, they're too close together. Or the reason they're washing away is because you didn't plant them deep enough. So, so helping them on that where they get a higher yield, now they are benefiting financially. The, the opposite side or the oppressor side is benefiting financially. They're getting clean water for the first time, and they're getting higher yields on their food, which means they're able to go sell it at the market better or they're able to feed their kids better. How did um, you get the pygmies out of the being slaves and emancipate them? Do they have to be bought out of slavery? No. Uh, in fact, if you, if you start with that terminology, we kind of don't even, we, we acknowledge it. Like they are free. They are their own people. This is their own land. Um, but we don't put a price on a human being's head. The, the reason is because you'll create a market for it. Um, and what we've seen with other organizations and, and some things they've struggled with, and now that's different there, it's been trafficking, um, like human trafficking and there's been times that, that the pygmies have struggled with that um, or been victimized of that, but not not normally. Um, and so, for instance, with some anti-trafficking groups, uh, they've found themselves buying someone out of slavery, returning them to the family, and then six months later, they go back to the same hostel, or not hostel, but the same uh, brothel, um, and they find the same girl in the same position. Uh, and what they found was they were buying the person out of slavery, taking them back to the family. And what's the problem is the, the, the person that owned, owned them previously, or, or it was the family sometimes that sold them into it because they needed to make some sort of money. So basically, I could go into that for, for a while, but you don't want to create a market uh, for, yeah. for yeah. people, if that makes sense. I can sum it up that way. There's a lot of shit going on with him. We thought our lives were complicated. When are you going? When's your? Uh, what's your? What's your? Okay. What are you doing the next year? When? When are you going back? Yeah. So I'll go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in February, um, and I'll do that with uh, Chris Long, who's a buddy of mine. I climbed. Uh, Chris Long won the Super Bowl with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles this last year. 
Um, he also won the Super Bowl the year before with the Patriots. And uh, so him and I gathered a crew. Um, last year it was five or six NFL veterans, and it was six or seven uh, military veterans. And uh, this next year we're going to try to have two to five um, MMA veterans, uh, or, or combat sports, uh, maybe, maybe Chuck. Chuck would maybe. love it. Chuck would love it. I think so. Well, he Chuck, just did Chuck that. Or, he did, or both. Uh, Chuck or you or both, maybe. Yeah. John hikes our biggest mountain here every week. Okay. Well, it'll <laughs> it's be a, a hill. Hill. <laughs> It's a hill. Is it, is it 19,341 feet? Yeah. It, it may reach a thousand feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we can talk about that sometime, too, because we, we really are looking for some people. Um, the thing that we're trying to do is raise enough to really transform some, some communities. Uh, and so last year, our climb was able to, to – there was a 2,000-person school um, that uh, – I mean, I have pictures on my phone. I can, I can show you guys later. I can text you, John. And um, uh, they were having to go collect water literally with, with makeshift jerry cans that were either paint buckets – or they were uh, what you would change your oil with, um, and they were filling it up from this dirty, disgusting, dark brown uh, creek, and they would have mud in their bucket as they went to school, and they would try to you know let let it settle and then drink from it, uh, but the water would still be dark brown at top, um, and so now they have clean water, uh, which is is just awesome because water changes everything, and so what we're doing now over the next year is we've actually stepped into something. Uh, because I want to make a difference here too. So we're doing um, two initiatives. We've expanded from just being the thirsty or the pygmies uh, to now we have the pygmies, the thirsty, and uh, the bullied. Um, so we're going to be doing some stateside stuff with Century, uh, which I know you, your, your last uh, podcast, I think, or one of the last ones was kind of, you shared a little bit of your amazing time at the Martial Arts Super Show, John, and, um, and I just loved it. That was my first experience. And if there's someone listening to this that, that they own a martial arts academy or they're an instructor, I would say next year go because I'm already planning on going. Um, it was amazing. It was it was awesome. So what we hope to do is rally 100 martial arts um, academies uh, to help us transform uh, 100 communities in the Congo and in, uh, in Africa and then 100 communities here. So what we want to do is rally them to do a crowdfunding uh, campaign on our website. And if they're successful at raising $4,200, they'll transform a community with clean water. We'll go drill a well for them, or we'll empower the locals to drill wells for themselves. And then it'll equip their own martial arts academy with a fight for the forgotten century Maya developed uh, curriculum. Uh, and it'll have a 12 week um, curriculum with Matt chat topics. Uh, it'll have a video series. It'll have a handbook and a handout. Uh, we're hoping to do wristbands and T-shirts, um, but uh, we're excited for that. We want to advance martial arts in the community because of the, the transformation it had in my life whenever I was 13 years old, suicidal, uh, wanted to kill myself. Um, it was martial arts that gave me hope. Um, so we want to help the Martial Arts Academy school owners advance martial arts in the community. So how we'll do that is give them a four-step marketing plan. It'll be pretty turnkey. It'll be an online fundraising toolkit. There'll be videos of, of, of anti-bullying stories, bullying prevention curriculums. They'll have water crisis stats and videos. They can host a kickathon or a rollathon at their academy, um, and, and, and it'll be an eight-week-long crowdfunding campaign. And so $4,200 $4, or $4,200 sounds like a lot, 
Um, but I've done it three times and each time raised over 50,000. Our martial arts academy did something for the holiday season. Um, and we hosted kind of a holiday uh, Christmas like fundraiser. And the first night we had 80 people from our academy there. And we walked away with our, we set the goal at 4,200, kind of to do a test run and see how hard this would be. And first night we walked away, and not saying this would be everyone, but we, we were able to have $14,400. And I think we ended the campaign with over $20,000. And then a little boy named Beckett, my wife and I went, and this is just fun stuff for me. Uh, he's five years old. He wanted to raise $500 for his fifth birthday, which was on 5-5. And I can't even really have, have a concept of being five years old and saying, I don't want birthday presents this year. I want to give the gift of clean water. But his heart was captured. He, he watched my story when he was like three years old. His family watched me in, on Facebook, and they saw a video, and they live in a little podunk town in Oklahoma. And I was living in Colorado at the time, and we flew out, and we went and surprised him for his birthday because he had to change his goal three different times. He raised over $500, then he raised over $1,500, and then the little guy, a little newspaper covered him. He raised over $5,000 um, and completely transformed a community uh, for himself. So that whole quote, if you think you're too, oh, well, actually, there's a Swahili proverb I just went into that says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a closed room with a mosquito. <laughs> and so that little guy that's five years old was able to raise that. We think martial arts communities, when we come together, when we unite and fight, we'll be able to transform 100 communities with clean water, and then they'll be able to change their community or hopefully stand up and speak out against bullying with the online curriculum. So that's kind of the goal for this next year. I want to unite the martial arts academies to, to stand up, to fight, uh, to knock out the water crisis, and then to knock out bullying in their own community. So if people listening want to, you know, check you out or, or look into donating to help your cause with, with what you're doing, where do they go? Yeah. So uh, recently we stepped out from underneath our, um, our, our partner, Water4, which is an incredible organization. But to get into the bullying side of things, we switched it up. It's, um, it's fightfortheforgotten.org. And so we're still going to be funding water wells through, through Water4 and through the partnership, the, the, the team I founded uh, that I started up in Congo that's now drilled over 77 wells, which is just amazing from, from me being there for a year and 13. Now they've done 77. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fightfortheforgotten.org or .com. Both of them work, and there's an easy donate button there. And then in a week or two, um, there'll be a, a, a thing called Classy or Crowdfunding where if they wanted to start their own fundraiser, share it on Instagram, Twitter, uh, something like that, they could set a goal of like $4,200, and that would transform a community with, with clean water. Wow. Wow. Some craziness here. We thought right. we had a life. We don't even have a life compared to all. So when you 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 went over there with your wife though, didn't you? Yeah. How so, was uh, that? So, <laughs> you don't have any kids. What's that? No kids, right? No kids yet. No kids yet. How long have you been, been married? We've been married for three and a half years. We've been together for six and a half. Um, and we were engaged at the time that she came over there and visited. Uh, she's been to Rwanda twice, Uganda twice, and Congo twice. And in Congo, uh, she spent three full months, uh, which is pretty funny. Her her dad says that she grew up camping, but
But I said, Papa Bear, was that at Yogi Bear Camp and with a, with a camper? He's like, yeah. I go, well, that's, that's kind of glamping, like glamour camping. Um, so her first real time to ever camp was in the rainforest with the Mabuti pygmies sleeping on the dirt under the twig and leaves. And she had roaches crawl across her neck. Um, and uh, that was her first night out there. She was rained on. All her stuff was wet. So I, I've definitely got a saint um, for a wife that, uh, that, that, that in the book uh, – there's a picture. I just don't imagine our wives with us doing that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, hey, mine too. She she grew up in South Lake, Texas, like Dallas, Fort Worth. She's a city girl, um, and so the quote underneath the picture uh, says, "She must really love me," <laughs> um, because I I uh, I actually made a big bonehead mistake. I let our driver of our vehicle. Now in Congo, you don't let the sun go down and be on the road. Uh, you, it's, it's kind of becomes a ghost town anywhere you are. It's almost like a wild Western or, or Western that you'd watch a old Western where the sun starts to set and everyone starts to board up and clear the streets. It's kind of that way in Congo. Um, well, it's not kind of, it is that way where people lock up and they don't come out, uh, after dark. And so, um, we got out to a village, um, and actually a rebel group came through that first night um, uh, to the village next to us. But we were very fortunate to, to flee across the river um, in, in dark and, and get to safety. But um, he had to turn around because he heard some news that these guys were close by. So he had to turn around and leave. Well, he took, he, he took one bag. My wife had two bags that she came with. Um, and he took one of her bags with like her toiletries and her mosquito net. Um, so literally, uh, she was exposed to all the elements, uh, for her first month of being in the rainforest. She's still still with them. How come our wives, they would leave us. They would not, they would, I know yours would. I know for a fact, I know for a double fact, mine would. You met my wife. She almost left me. And then, uh, there was this bridge that was in a river uh, and they had like cut it, uh, the tree fell, they cut the tree, they, they peeled it apart to where there was like two ways to walk across it or use two feet on this tree. And, um, so anytime she needed like to shower or something, she would lay on that and not get in the water and I would like wash her hair <laughs> and stuff. So she made me, she made me make up for it or maybe not, but, but I did everything I could to accommodate her. While we were there. Are you going to, are you going to fight anymore? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I I just had a surgery, and that's why my last fight was March of 2017. Um, but I, I had a surgery. I was what trying to PT. I, I had the first time I'm saying it publicly, but it's fine. Um, I had a shoulder surgery. I had a labrum tear, uh, and uh, it didn't go as planned. And then we had to get a new one. And, but my sur- my shoulder is gonna gonna make a hundred percent full recovery. Um, and I'll be fighting again soon. Well, not soon. Um, I'll be fighting after the Kilimanjaro climb. So trying to plan it out to where we're getting the new foundation up and running. I'm doing all my PT literally from 8 to 12 in the morning. Uh, I'm with my physical therapist. My surgeon even comes uh, a few days um, out of the month to watch my my progress. Um, and then I'll be climbing Kilimanjaro in February. I'll be going back to Congo then too. Then I plan to fight either April or May. Um, 2019 Bellator. I signed a new five fight deal with them. Oh, great. great. Yeah. I actually got to sign that at the top of Kilimanjaro. So, uh, I put it against the sign, signed it. Uh, and what people don't know, I got the picture signing it, but somewhere in Tanzania, 
is a piece of paper with my name, my signature, and my social security number. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it blew off the mountain. Who do, you, who do, you, do you know who you're fighting? or? No, I don't know who I'm fighting, but, but I'll go ahead and say that my name was in the hat for the, uh, the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, I was just dealing with some injuries. Then I was supposed to be the alternate um, and then I, I had the surgery, so I was I was removed from from the tournament. So hopefully, when I come back, I'll be fighting some some bigger name guys, especially since uh, since it helps bring awareness to the cause. That's why I came back. Um, my wife and I have an agreement that uh, you know she's like, if you're coming back, you we've got to have a reason, a purpose, um, you know, to keep keep me keep me focused, uh, keep me away from from the life I had lived uh, beforehand. Um, and so now when I fight, uh, the, the show, and this isn't, it's not, hopefully it's not to like pat myself on the back, but to share, like, I think that athletes, you know, you look at Olympic athletes, I've read some books and whenever you can raise the bar or raise the necessity of why I'm going to win this fight or why I'm going to win this race, you know, maybe it's a, a Olympic sprinter and he's running, um, so that he can, he can, you know, do it in remembrance of his mother that passed away or, or someone here that's doing it for this cause or this purpose or this reason for their wife and their kids. Um, I don't have kiddos yet. I'm sure that would raise the necessity. I'm trying to put food on the table. Um, but for me, I'm trying to drill more wells, trying to get more land, uh, trying to, to speak out about, about bullying. And so when I fight and I win, I get to grab the mic, tell people, direct people to how they can get involved, how they can support but then I get to raise the bar that the, the show money comes to my wife and I, but the win bonus, uh, we give 100% of that away um, to the cause, to the foundation. Um, so we're, we're stoked about that. We're stoked about moving forward and uh, being able to, to truly celebrate the victory and say this was, this was for more um, than just me. This was, this was for a reason. This was for a purpose. This is for people that really need it. So, um, <clears throat> man, that, that's what gets me going. That's what uh, fires me up. Well, you're very inspiring. I mean, the difference you're making is huge. And so I know for me, you know, you get, there's people in your life, and that's why I asked you that earlier, that seem to make a big difference. And you see when you have your own kids, you wonder who they're going to meet and who's going to be that person that just steers them a different direction. You know, for you, you changed, you changed your whole life and changed your direction. It's inspiring just to get this story out there. I know you have before, but... I appreciate you sharing with us because it's an amazing story. Amazing, yeah. We're big on oh. bullying here. That's mm. what started me. I call it "Don't let anyone take your lunch money," and uh, it's the whole thing that started with me in Hawaii. Yeah, we'll collaborate because I'm like this with Century and Maya. You know, the way I mean, so the, the owner of Century comes out here and trains. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. So Mike, uh, Mike's a great guy. Well, oh. if there was ever any way for us to partner in that uh yeah. talk talk about uh the the bullying campaign or curriculum coming to you guys um that would be incredible i know uh uh dave kovar was talking about helping me with uh helping develop it and some other guys and some other maya people and uh terry was talking about that and um so any of your input yeah uh would mine, be... mine is like kind of you'd probably be in the middle but mine is uh like kovar He's a nicer person than I am, a lot nicer. Um, but and my my bullying doesn't doesn't even I can't even go to the schools like we used to go to the schools. But mine is hit back, so yeah. we call it fight back. But you're not you know the zero tolerance. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I say better to be suspended than comatose, right? Wow. So it doesn't go, the, most parents love it, um, but it doesn't usually fit in the school system. So like something in between mine and Kovar's go together. Mine's a little more like, don't let anyone take your lunch money. Um, and Kovar's is, is a little, um, it's a little more politically correct. Okay. Uh, but mine is like, fuck, I don't think, I don't want to be politically correct to a fucking piece of shit bully. You know, they're not just poor wayward people. They're, they're bullies. Yeah. And usually bullies in school, they grow up to be bullies too. Mm. They're usually the bad, they're, you know, they're mean people. So I have a whole bully. We'll talk about it though. But okay. man, we love, we love having you, man. Uh, like I said, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not like you are, you know, like I'm more like, fuck them all. I mean, not like really, I really help a lot of people. I really do, but it's in a different do. way. I mean, I started training Chuck in my backyard, you know, um, awesome. but, uh, but when I heard you talk, my, my wife was like, she's never seen me like get, get that worked up over this whole pygmy thing. And just, so I think it's fascinating the way you're, uh, you're so passionate about it. It's like, I tell everyone, I didn't give a shit about pygmies. Now I do. It's like, because, because you bring that on people. So loved having you. Um, I can't wait to see you again. And now we're friends. Yeah. I hope, I hope you don't hate me. Uh, no, I love you. This is but, awesome. Uh, yeah. And, and if you ever need anything for your fight or anything, uh, I've done that before too. So, uh, love to help you. Um, well, one other thing is I did watch your TED Talk, which was really cool. I didn't realize you had malaria while you were doing it, which is nuts. But if anyone wants to check out his TED Talk, it's pretty cool because you had, you had video pictures, all that stuff. You could see yeah. see what we're talking about here. You could actually see it. So is that on YouTube? I don't remember where I saw it. Yeah, I, it's on YouTube, and I, I believe it's on our website at fightfortheforgotten.org or fightfortheforgotten.com. It's all one word. Um, and if people want to sign up for a newsletter, we'll be doing something maybe every quarter or, or by, by annually. Um, so we won't, we won't spam people. We won't blast them too much, but, oh, especially if someone's, a you know, this is our crowd and, and, and this is, um, uh, my tribe, my first tribe before I was adopted in by the pygmies, uh, was the martial arts tribe. And so if people want to help us make a difference, um, in another tribe, then, uh, then they can sign up for the newsletter there, and we'll be letting them know what we're going to do a century because that's just an amazing uh, partnership for us. The reason being is, man, I mean, we were able to drill uh, 77 wells since 2014, and I really went there the first time in 2011 and was working on it that whole time. Even 2013, I was there for six months and basically failed, 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 and failed. Um, and so eight times trying to drill my first eight wells. And so to get 13 up now, 77, I think this year in 2018, we can literally drill a hundred wells. We just need the funding for it. And so, uh, to have people unite, uh, to crowdfund, to know you're part of something. I'm just inviting people in on the adventure. Let's do our school. Let, I'll talk to you about this later, but let's start with, okay. uh, let's start with the pit, man. Let's start that would with be the awesome. Pit. I'm got, so stoked. You know, it's not just a fight team. You know, I have a gym with like, we started three years old. We have, uh, we have orthopedic surgeons. We have doctors. We have lawyers. We have cops. We have, we have the biggest kids program in the County. So oh, it's wow. like, um, I think, I think we, we could, we could work on a lot of stuff, but we can make some happen. 
Well, well hey. transforming a community with you would be awesome. I can't tell you the difference it makes. So uh, just on this, just real quick, man, you've been, you've been to the big ones. You've been to, Ch- obviously you've been to Chuck Tito, um, all, all those different things. You sat ringside for them. Um, for me, I've been to UFC 100. I've been to Manny Pacquiao fights. I've been to the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals. I've been to some of the biggest sporting events and arenas in the world. And I've also been to a water well celebration of just 100 people, 100 people living in a village. And uh, to see them get clean water and to be part of that celebration um, drowns out the, the 50, 75,000, 100,000 people stadiums the, the, the depth of gratitude, the excitement. I mean, I've, I've literally danced until the sun came up and, and had my cheeks just literally just straining and cramping on me because of smiling and went to bed completely dripping wet in the hot, humid rainforest. And normally I would never be able to sleep that way in my life, just dripping wet, but, but just passing out of, of happy exhaustion, you know, um, Nothing, nothing compares uh, to, 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 to the victory in life that that is, you know. They've been standing in this field of, of giants, um, of, of different illnesses, whether it's cholera or typhoid or E. coli or whatever it is, um, and, and to have victory over that. Man, it's, it, it's an exciting thing. So, 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 sorry, I could talk about this all day, but to be able to do that with you in the pit, um, you, Jim, you, John, uh, that would be rad. That would be absolutely We could do the same dancing for people that were bullied and shit. And now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get them uh, empowered too. Yeah, and I forgot to say this. Um, I just found out today, um, you guys are the first people I get to tell this to, um, but an amazing anonymous donor uh, said that for the next three months, um, they're doing a 50000 dollar match meaning that if i can raise fifty thousand dollars they're gonna match it so every dollar if someone donates a dollar it's really two um if someone donates a hundred it's really two hundred so we can donate fifty grand it's really a hundred grand and so for us to to just be kind of starting up our um our foundation on its own that's a huge kickstart uh and, and so really stoked about it so whether it's with a pit or whether it's a one-time donation or reoccurring donation it gets doubled so uh i'm pumped about that awesome we're in awesome hey well, hey um the world needs more people like you oh, this is awesome talking oh, yeah. to you the world you know especially in our little world but in our united states becomes so divisive and divided and i can't even turn on the news anymore to talk to people like you and to see you out there making a difference, it's very inspiring. So thank you for what you're doing. It's thank awesome. Thank you. Thank you, man. Hey, thank you so much. Couldn't yeah. do it without great I people hope to like see you. Soon and we'll hook up after the show. Not like hook up, hook up, though. Okay. <laughs> see you later. Thanks, Ralph. Ladies, just nice hey, to meet you. Guys. Great, great meeting nice you. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you, John.